thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. This is Up for a Chat with Cindy O'Mara, Karen Smith, and Kim Morrison. Here we are, up for a chat about the hottest topics that are important to you, inspiring you to awaken the change within. I'm Karen Smith. I'm Kim Morrison. And our beautiful Cindy is on a plane right now, so she's not with us. But, you know, Kimmy and I felt that today's guest, you know, it's fine for us to go ahead because it's a very very beautiful story. It's a very positive and a very inspiring and uplifting story that, hasn't come from the greatest of beginnings, but I think, um, I think being able to have this conversation is going to bring an enormous amount of awareness, not only to the issue um, at hand, but I think also too, it's going to bring enormous awareness to the internal dialogue that a lot of us have as women and as men and how early this internal dialogue can start. So I want to welcome to the show the beautiful Millie Thomas. Welcome to the show, Millie. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's going to be such a beautiful show. Millie, tell us a little bit about your background and tell us, you know, we know why you're on the show, but why don't you tell us why you're on the show? Okay, so I suffered with anorexia nervosa from the age of 12 to 27, so 15 very, very long um, years, which I would sort of describe as being in a, in a living hell of sorts. Um, and when I recovered um, from anorexia, I decided that I wanted to help others who were suffering because Um, Through my own journey, I really, really felt that we were dealing with a very, very broken uh, mental health system that really wasn't equipped for dealing with people suffering um, from eating disorders. And so that's when I decided that um, I was also going to move to my happy place, the Sunshine Coast, and things have really, really grown from there. I would love to ask you, from being a young person, as young as 12, to then fall into or or somehow explain to us how you arrived at the position you got yourself into from an eating disorders perspective. And can you give it to us from from your point of view in the moment of being that person? And then maybe even also as a reflective of looking back at that person, could you give us the two viewpoints in any chance, Millie? Sure. So um, in terms of in that moment, look, I'd started at an all-girls private school. Uh, I was feeling very um, sort of a little bit out of my depth and felt that I needed to, to fit in. Um, and upon reflection, there was, there was no need for me to try and fit in. I, I fit in, fitted in perfectly. But in my head, um, it felt that I needed to, you know, possibly change something to be to be as good as everybody else was. And um, my, my immediate thought was, well, if I lost some weight, um, then maybe I'd fit in more. Um, and because um, with eating disorders, we talk about it like the genes load the gun and the environment pulls the trigger. So I was genetically predisposed to having an eating disorder and also my personality characteristics um, in terms of being a high achiever, type A, um, tendencies towards OCD, it really um, set the scene for me in terms of then being thrown into an environment um, that was a trigger um, 
for for the eating disorder and so before I sort of knew it it wasn't very it wasn't a conscious thing I decided to make a few small changes like decided that I was going to make my own lunch and take that to school um, decided that I was going to do some more exercise just what would be I guess seen as being healthy and um, positive decisions to make and they really just spiraled out of control um, before me or my family really had a chance to, to recognize that it was an issue um, and back then the um, I guess sort of accepted form of treatment was that you know that I was to be pulled out of school and that I was to be refed and then once my weight was at an acceptable level I'd be put back into school um, and so that's what was done um, as recommended by the professionals at that time. And what that doesn't address is the psychological issues um, that were underpinning my eating disorder. So I, you know, went back to school and everyone was like, oh, Millie's well again. Um, but I wasn't well. You know, my head games were still very, very, very prevalent. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't socially be able to interact in ways that you know other teenagers could so I wouldn't be, be able to go to birthday parties and, and eat anything or drink anything um for fear of you know what the food might contain um and so it really it was sort of like my high school years was were you know sure I was existing I call it existing I wasn't truly living you know I was existing um and but I wasn't living a full life and I certainly wasn't um, myself, so to speak, because I was very, you know, over, overtaken by an eating disorder. We talk about the fact that you have an eating disorder self and a healthy self. Um, and my eating disorder self was very, very much in, in the driver's seat. Um, so back in those young years, it, it just it just took over and it was very, very hard for me to differentiate between what was my healthy self and what was my eating disorder self. And, you know, so when making simple decisions around, you know, what I was going to eat, it was really hard for me to decipher, well, is that being driven by my eating disorder or is that being driven by me? Um, you know, and I, in terms of reflecting back on it, I look back on it and I just feel really sad. I feel really sad that, um, you know, I had that thought that I needed to fit in and that that then, um, you know, manifested in the way that it did because I do... Um, feel I, I mean and I always talk about it that I never regret what I've gone through because I feel that it's made me the person that I am today and it allows me to do um, the wonderful work that I do but I do you know I guess yearn for um, the teenage years that I didn't have in terms of being carefree and going out and you know getting drunk and you know, all the rites of passages passage that people go through you know, I never experienced that um, because I was always you know playing by my eating disorders rules um, so I really didn't get to have that carefree um, laissez-faire attitude that a lot of teenagers have um, yeah does that sort of answer that yeah I'm just really curious because it, obviously this doesn't happen to everybody Yes. And obviously not everybody would think like you. Like I would say I was quite obsessed with my health and wellness. Yes. But I never had that association to not wanting to eat or to, to wanting to control myself in that way. Can you somehow articulate to us what that looks like from your point of view? How, how does that evolve? How do you flick? Does a switch flick that you no longer understand 
that healthy range that you could be in? Or I'm just curious around the mindset and Karen might be able to help me here too. Yes, look, I think for me, it was in the beginning a gradual progression of, you know, it, you know, simple behaviours, like I said, you know, deciding that I was going to take my, my lunch, you know, my, pack my own lunches, and then it became not having my lunches at school and that sort of thing. And I do think that that in terms of when you start to lose a certain amount of weight, the switch definitely does, does um, flick. And it's very, very hard to pull yourself out of that and see things in reality because your reality is very, very, um, sorry, in the reality that other people would see because your, your perception is very, very distorted. It's not only your distorted perception of, of your body, but also, you know, you're placing emphasis on things that really don't, don't matter that much um, to other people and you're you're very I mean you're obsessed to a level that other people aren't you know about calories about exercise about the way you look about what you're wearing um, comparing yourself to other people um, and I think yeah, you're right look some people are, are conscious of their health and wellness and conscious of their weight and they don't go down that eating disorder path I think it's got, I mean, there are a lot of factors at play. It's got a lot to do with, with genetics. It's got a lot to do with, you know, your again, your personality traits and then the environment that you're in and the people that you're surrounded by. Um, you know, it's sort of, it's that sort of, it sets the scene for, for that next trajectory, so to speak. Millie, you said that um, the environment that you're in, Mm-hmm. understanding your personality traits you said that you were like a high achiever and a typical a type and that you know i really get that tell me a little bit about or tell us a little bit about the environment that you were in that um lit the flame what was that about i i i do believe um look i had an amazing education at the school that i went to and i will be forever grateful for that socially the environment for me was incredibly incredibly toxic um, it was all girls, um, so there was a lot of talk around um, weight, people's body shapes, what people were wearing, um, and I then I think that was probably that up until that that point, you know, I hadn't really considered my body other than you know what it what it enabled me to be able to do, and food to me was fuel and something to also be enjoyed. Um, and once I got into that sort of all girls environment where everybody was quite concerned about how they looked, um, what they were eating, um, that, that started to change. And I started to, you know, realize that, you know, people looked at food, um, as being, you know, this whole good and bad, which is not, which not, is not at all. And food should never be labeled as good and bad, but there were these little things that I started to pick up and go, oh, okay, so I shouldn't be eating that and I should be doing this and my legs should look like that. And I really had been very, very sheltered from that um, up until that point. You know, I'd grown up with a family who were, were, were healthy, active, um, and there was never any judgment about, about body shape. Um, it was a very, very balanced approach to that. Um, and I, again, I'm very grateful for my parents for that because a lot of children don't grow up in households like that. And there is a lot of, you know, labeling of body, body shapes and sizes. Um, I do 
also feel um, and look eating disorders don't discriminate it doesn't matter you know what socioeconomic you know group you're in or you know what background you've had they really don't discriminate but for me that environment of being um, very much amongst people who um, you know of, of sort of socioeconomic status um, high socioeconomic status was also another reason because that was you know not only were the were the girls that I was surrounded by obsessed by it but also the mothers were too and it's really interesting because I have had discussions with um, girls that I've been to school with um, just in, in in recent very recent years and they've admitted to me that oh yes well mum suffered from bulimia the whole time we were at school or yeah look mum you know had anorexia or you know, whatever it is and there was so it was almost like this generational thing um that was happening and so I guess in terms of environment that that's what I was talking about hmm. I think that's you know that's a really big distinction and I think a lot of girls particularly you know statistically um tend to go through those phases where you know they're coming they, they're going through puberty they're growing up their uh, things are changing in their bodies and they start to compare themselves with other girls and the then change, the change thing is huge because oh yeah. you know, you, you're dealing with your hormones you're dealing with your body changing there's, mm. there's and now especially with social media there's a societal pressure and we're also in a be in, an, in this obesogenic culture where there's such a focus on tackling the obesity epidemic mm. um you know it's it's i i think i often what i often say is that if I had been, you know, if I was 12 now and, you know, I don't think I would have had a chance of not having an eating disorder and also not probably, I don't know that I would have survived just because, you know, back then we didn't even have social media. So there wasn't that added pressure as well. I mean, the environment now is just, it's, it's terrible. My, my youngest recovery coaching client is eight and that just breaks my heart. Yeah, well, statistically, they're suggesting that 38% of the American population is obese. Or th th sorry, 38% of the American population under the age of, of eight is already obese. And so you can imagine um, what that's going to be like for those kids growing up, having already, you know, sparked a lot of that, that, that genetic response internally. I just, it, it makes my skin crawl. I'm just, I guess... Staying back with your story for now, just mm -hmm. to get a little bit of clarity on this, because a lot of a lot of girls go through a similar kind of experience where there's a lot of pressure and a lot of competition and a lot of obviously hormones and so on. What now that you're on the other side of it, which we are so proud of you and you're so inspiring. Now that you're on the other side of it and you can look back, yes, there's the you know the 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 the, the explanations of the different triggers but what do you think it was what's the difference that made the difference that made you choose anorexic behaviors as a way to deal with that competition and that needing to fit in and that needing to be accepted what do you think what, what do you think it was that made you choose that path now that you can look back on it to be honest I don't know, you know, precisely. And in all my years of therapy, we haven't got down to an exact answer of why um, 
you know, I chose that path. I do believe that, you know, as I've said, with, you know, genetically predisposed personality characteristics, I feel that that was just innate in me. It was my innate sort of response to it. I also did have a destructive uh, friendship with a, with a, um, a girl who, and I didn't realize at the time that she was being manipulative, but she was quite manipulative in terms of the way that she would compare my body to hers. And she was a very different build to me. Um, and so therefore I always felt that I was falling short in terms of that. Um, and I, I, I think that that made me start to feel that I was just a little bit inadequate and um, because I'd started to sort of see that in this new sort of world that I was existing in, um, that self-worth seemed to be attached to the number on the scales or, or the size of your thighs, um, I then, you know, I took that on board. Yeah, I can, I can totally understand, you know, what, that's, what that was like. I, I went to a very similar, well, I had a very similar situation and it's amazing how um, particularly influential, not, uh, not influential, it's the wrong word, how easily we're influenced when we're at that age and stage of our lives. There's a particular vulnerability um, for girls at that stage because, you know, the basic human instinct is to be loved and accepted. And when we see that we're not being loved and accepted in the way that we think we should be, then, of course, we set about finding out ways to be loved and accepted. And obviously that was your, your choice there, which is, you know, completely unconscious and completely innocent. And, you know, how did, how did, at what point did your parents pick up that things weren't quite right for you? Like at what point did you guys see that there was something going on? How far in were you? Um, it was about sort of six months um, down the track before, um, you know, mum started to realise that there, there, there was an issue here. Um, because I think, it's, I think it's also hard for parents at that stage because your body, bodies are constantly changing anyway. So, you know, she thought that I maybe was just having a growth spurt and I was just kind of leaning out a little bit. Um, and it took her a while, you know, it took them a while to realize that there was, there was an issue. Um, and you know, eating disorders are master manipulators and lie, um, and cheat to get, to get what they want. And so, um, it was a little while down the track before, before mm. we picked it up. Um, but and how did they pick it up? What were the signs? I mean, I'm just thinking of a whole bunch of mums now thinking of their kids that are listening. What were some of the signs that you and your mum saw that made you realise? Um, well, there were always excuses of, oh, I've eaten at soccer practice or I ate at so-and-so's house or, you know, I want to make my own dinner, um, things like that. Um, and then also hiding food. So, you know, sitting down for dinner with everybody, but then kind of hiding it in my napkin when no one was looking, um, wanting to do a lot of exercise. Um, so it really increasing, you know, I'd always been an active person, but it's sort of like my, my physical activity really increased. Um, and also just not being myself. So, you know, mum used to describe it as sort of like a mask would sort of come down across my face when anything to do with food 
um, was discussed. It was sort of like I went into a bit of a, a trance or this sort of fight or flight response. Um, and yeah, I think those things combined really, you know, made her realize that there was, there was something bigger at play. And was there um, a, a course of action that your mum took and did any of it help? Um, so as I said um, before, the the course of action was, you know, you go to the GP, the GP yeah. said, right, you know, you stop school, you focus on refeeding Millie. Um, so that's what she did. She stopped work and she spent every day with me, refeeding me. And then they get to what, you know, they call an acceptable weight um, and send me back to school because, you know, uh, it's all about the weight and it's so not all about the weight. Um, as I said, you know, you've got to deal with the psychological issues that underpin the eating disorder because if you just weight restore somebody, um, all of those issues are still going to be there um, and the scene is absolutely set for them to relapse, um, which is basically what, you know, happened um, slowly but surely over my high school years and then I decided to reach new lows in terms of my weight um, and then that became the new normal and then I would drop again um, um, you know, into my late 20s. Talk us through some of the internal dialogue as you rode that roller coaster. What were some of the things that you used to say to yourself? It was all very much around the fact that I wasn't good enough, um, that I wasn't worthy, that no amount of, you know, no amount of playing by the eating disorders rules was ever enough. So the number on the scale was never good enough. Um, you know, my level of restriction was never good enough. The amount that I exercised was never good enough. So I was constantly in this state of feeling like I was failing. Um, and that um, in itself was just, it was horrible, a horrible feeling because you're going around feeling like, I often describe it like going around with, with a big sort of sack of bricks on your back, trudging through this black and white world where you've sort of got your blinkers on. You're not, you're very tunnel visioned. Um, and the eating disorder just has you in its grips. And so no matter if anybody says to you, right, well, you know, you are worthy and you are enough and you are loved, you, you, you find it very hard to believe that because eating disorder says to you, well, they're lying to you and you need to listen to me because I've got your best interests at heart. And, you know, you want to be pretty and popular and so you need to listen to me that I can get you that. So it was constantly telling me that, you know, if I stayed with it, then I would get what I ultimately wanted. And of course, you know, it's all just absolutely hollow lies after hollow lies. Um, but when you're in it, I mean, it's very, very hard to describe and it almost sounds, and I'm saying it now and I'm thinking, yes, God, people are going to be thinking, oh, that just sounds really weird. But when you're in it, that just, it seems like the most logical thing to do. You know, somebody is promising you exactly what you want and is telling you that if you play by its rules and do what it says, you will get that. You know, it's a bit like, I guess, someone saying, right, well, if you want a million dollars, here, look, I've got the, the formula to do that. You just need to do A, B, C, and D, and you'll get there. 
And I mean, that's basically what the eating disorder was saying to me. So I thought, well, hang on, I do really want this. So I'm going to follow its its rules. And even though other people were saying to me, you know, this is dangerous, or this is unhealthy, or this is whatever, you know, the eating disorder would then say back to me, oh, they're just jealous. They just want to have, you know, a body like yours or, you know, a myriad of other things that always had a comeback, always had a response to anything. Um, and it's just incredibly, incredibly convincing. And, you know, even when people would say to me, oh, you know, you're not seeing your body correctly. Well, I mean, that's incredibly, incredibly difficult thing to get your head around. I mean, it's like someone sitting you know, in a room and, and you can see that there's a red chair in the corner and they're saying that chair's green. You're saying, well, no, it's not, it's red. And they're saying, no, the chair's green. You're saying, no, it's red. I can see it's red here. I'm touching it. It's red. The paint is red. It's like, you, it's very hard for you to think, oh, no, that person's right and I'm wrong because with your very own eyes, you're seeing that the chair is red. Mm. Um, and that's an analogy I often use because people really find it hard to, to relate um, to what is going on in your head. I think that that's part of the challenge too, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, it's because there are so, you know, there are so few people who could relate. It, you'd be spending half your time trying to explain yourself, which kind of exacerbates the problem in the first place, doesn't it? I mean, if you're trying to explain what it's all about and what you're going through and you're almost in a place of defending what you're going through and keeping it right from a psychological point of view, that it just, it, it just re-cements that third voice. Look, know? the frustration in terms of that is huge because, mm. you know, people have all these, you know, misconceptions around, around eating disorders and, um, you know, and I even think for my mum, it was really, really hard both for both my mum and dad in terms of people saying things like, oh, well, you should just do this and she just needs some tough love. And, you know, and, oh, well, why can't she just eat? And, you know, all of these people just don't get it. They don't understand. And I do think that that's got a lot to do with the fact that up until now, and, I mean, we're still in the emerging stages of this, but people don't talk about it enough. You know, I mean, I talk about eating disorders as being where depression was 10 years ago. You know, people didn't talk about it. But then people started coming out and talking about it and writing books about it. And now it's not a taboo subject anymore. Mm. And I really feel we need to start doing that more with eating disorders um, because then people start to get an insight. And also people who are struggling out there, who are struggling in silence, start to feel like, Oh, I have a voice and I'm not alone in my struggle. And because it is, it's a very isolating, lonely experience. And you do, you feel like you're out there battling alone. And I think a lot of the time you, I, I know that I felt that, you know, I just wasn't going to get better. I was going to have to live like this for the rest of my life. I'm curious to ask you, if you don't mind me stepping in here, you talk about this voice and something that I've always really respected around how Karen and Cindy talk about things is one thing Karen said is, you know, when you hear that voice in your head, who is it? What is it? Because if you're the one listening to it, then if you're the one listening to it, who's the one speaking? And you were giving it a name, the eating disorder. Is, is that the same as what some people would have, Karen, around 
a mental illness where they hear voices in their head around other things. I'm just, I really am struggling to understand how the body would naturally want to survive and yet there's a voice in your head telling you to hurt it, yet you believe you're doing the right thing by it. Millie, what are your thoughts on that? Because that was, that was going to be a question of mine, given that you've kind of separated the eating disorder and you've almost personified it, that it yep. tells you what to do. So is that part of the healing process that you've gone through? Very much so. So part, so of, it, a part of the healing process is, um, and this is definitely something that Carolyn Costin um, uses, these analogies, is that the whole goal, of recovery is to strengthen your healthy self to a point where you can take care of that eating disorder self part of you and live in unison. You know, your body, mind and spirit is, is reconnected and you are happy and you're living a full life. What that does is really, um, you know, I guess recognize that the eating disorder self part is you know still part of you somewhere along the line that there's that it was still a part of me that you know became obsessed about my body and yes it was taken to the nth degree but it's not part of me that can suddenly be extracted and taken away forever but my healthy self was strengthened you know over my recovery period to a point where it well and truly took over my eating disorder self. Um, and there's not, it's hard to, everybody experiences it differently. And I think that's something really, really um, key is that everybody's experience of an eating disorder is quite individual. Hence, the blanket approach to treatment doesn't work. But there are obviously commonalities between, um, you know, people suffering with eating disorders. But, People experience it, some people experience it as a voice, some people experience it as sort of like a feeling or an overwhelming, you know, sensation. For me, it was a combination. I mean, I call it a voice because that's sort of the easiest way to explain it. Um, but when I think back to it, you know, when I was in those moments of when it was, you know, compelling me to do a certain behavior, there was definitely a part that was me choosing to listen to it. You know, I could have chosen not to listen to it, but there is a part of me that was choosing to listen to it. And I find that really, really, I guess, fascinating for want of a better word, because I do believe that, you know, in those moments, although, yes, you're overtaken by the eating disorder, you're still not physically being forced to do the action. So whether it is to exercise or whether it is to throw away a meal, you're not actually physically being forced to do that. But in a way, it's an overwhelming compulsion to the point where you may as well be being forced to do it. Um, and sometimes that was in the, in, in the form of a voice. Sometimes it was just in the form of a feeling. But I think, you know, when I was in the depths of my eating disorder, you know, so say 10 years in, there was no way that I could really decipher what was my eating disorder and what was me? Because, you know, I'd lived with this beast for so long that we had almost become one and the same. 
And, you know, my identity was very much wrapped up in my eating disorder. Mm. And then who are you without that story if you are looking to heal? And who are you without that condition? And, and Kim, that is one of the scariest things about recovery. And I talk to my clients about that all the time when they say, look, I want to recover, but I'm too scared. You know, I don't know what I'm going to be without my eating disorder. And look, it is scary. It's absolutely petrifying. It's one of the, you know, most excruciatingly difficult things that I've ever done in my life. But the way I see it is you can look at it in, you know, in terms of being really, really scary. And I don't know what I'm going to look like. I don't know what kind of person I'm going to be without my eating disorder. Or you can look at it as an incredible opportunity to reinvent yourself. You can become whoever you want to be. Um, And look, that still carries with it. Um, a lot of trepidation and a lot of fear and anxiety and that whole unknown quantity. But I think when you look at it in that way, rather than just fearing it completely and you look at it as an opportunity, um, I think that helps to kind of shift your perspective and help you to move forward towards recovery. So you you have gone through a lot to get yourself, obviously, to a position where you are right now. Tell us a little bit about, you know, when you reach the point of enough is enough, I'm not doing this to myself anymore. And what was that like? And then what did you do to help yourself? Okay, so unfortunately for me, it took me to really hit rock, rock bottom um, for me then to... Um, I guess it wasn't even really a conscious decision, to be honest. So around that time, basically what had happened was my, my treatment team had basically given up on me and, and the, um, the response was that I was too severe and enduring um, and that basically, you know, palliative care was really the option that should be considered. Um, and that for me was was a huge turning point because up until that point, I really had been trying. No, I hadn't been making a lot of progress, but I'd been trying. Um, and I felt like, you know, if the professionals are all saying that there isn't any hope, then I just sort of felt like, well, what was the point of me trying anymore? And, you know, it was really, really hard to get up each day and try and fight this, this demon. Um, and so that really set me, um, I was already obviously very unwell, but that really led me to that point where I was given you know, a a week to live. And at that point, I have to be honest with you, I've never been suicidal, um, never really struggled with depression even. Um, But I really felt, um, you know, my doctor sort of said, you have to make that decision whether you're going to live or you're going to die. And I really made that decision that I, I couldn't go on anymore. I couldn't face the living hell that I was having to endure every hour of every day. Um, and that was when, um, my dear mum decided to bring me over to the Sunshine Coast and it was here where, uh, she found a woman who specializes in NLP, so neuro-linguistic programming, a combination of that and hypnotherapy. Um, I had a lot of trepidation about, about going to see her. I really didn't feel that anyone could help me at this point. Um, and I remember even after my first session, uh, saying to mum that that wasn't going to work, um, that I was too sick um, and, you know, that was a waste of her money. And she asked me why and I said, well, mum, I just sat there the whole time. I don't remember what the woman said, but all I remember thinking was about the size of my thighs and the fact that I should be out for a run. 
Um, and mum said, look, you know, can you give it one more try? Just give her another go. And so I went back the next session and I said to this woman, look, it's not you, it's me. I'm too unwell. And she said, why do you think that? And I explained to her and she said, yes, I know thinking those things. And, and you were also thinking. And she reeled off all of these sort of, you know, eating disorder thoughts that I've never really told anyone that run through that ran through my head on a daily basis. And she explained to me that, you know, those were all, that was my conscious mind and it was my eating disorder. And that if she had tried to interrupt that, there was no way that she could work on my subconscious. And so she started to delve into my subconscious um, and help me to unearth some of the major key beliefs and values that were keeping my eating disorder thriving. Um, and that was an incredibly, incredibly confronting process. Um, and there were many, many uh, sessions, which I stormed out of, you know, screaming at her, saying that there was, you know, no way that I was ever going to give up these certain beliefs. Um, but slowly and surely, I began to realize that these were the things that were keeping me ill. And these were the things that I'd never addressed. And that if I didn't start addressing them, I was going to die and that I had a choice in that moment to give this everything that I've got and really try with this NLP and hypnotherapy or I was going to die. And I decided to give it everything that I'd got. I also made the decision that if this didn't work, that this was my, my final shot. I didn't feel that I had it in me um, to try it again. Um, try getting well again, um, and very, very, um, well, I'm very gra- grateful, it's not even a word, but by some grace of God, <laughs> uh, it worked, and, um, you know, six months of very, very intense, hard slog um, got me out the other side of, of my eating disorder. And, and kudos to you, Millie, I can't imagine the pain and the challenge and the enormity of overcoming something, especially to have this condition from the age of 12 to 27. And as we know, not all people come out the other side with, uh, with life. Can you tell me what your, what your mum and dad went through? Can you have any concept now of looking back in that time of what this did to your parents and the people that loved you? Yeah, look, absolutely. And I have been given an even further insight over these last four years working with NDAD in terms of we also provide uh, lived experience support to parents and carers. Um, And so I help other parents and carers who uh, still have daughters or sons or partners or um, wives who are struggling um, with, with eating disorders. And you know, sitting in, in the support groups and, and giving them an insight into what's going on, you know, um, in, in their loved one's brain um, has really given me an even deeper appreciation of, of the heartache and, and pain that my, my parents went through. Um, you know, for my mum, it meant that she gave up her job to look after me um, and she really poured her heart and soul into trying to get me well. Um, and that really took a toll on her, caused it to have a nervous breakdown. Um, and there are many, you know, we look back on it now, and there were many, many, you know, nights of screaming and yelling and just absolute just despair. 
um, that we wouldn't wish upon our worst enemy. Um, and in terms of, you know, the eating disorder likes to fracture things. So it did its absolute best to drive a wedge between my mum my and dad. Um, fortunately, the strength of their relationship stood took the test of time and they um, are still happily married but there were many moments there where things were very very much on tender hooks because my eating disorder was hell-bent on ruining that that marriage so that therefore there was less of a um, less support um, and less strength in them as a unit fighting against the eating disorder and helping to get me well um, it also had a huge effect on, on my brother, um, my, my dear brother, Eddie. He is four years younger than I am. And we had a really close relationship as children. Um, and then, you know, when I got sick, basically, you know, the focus, as much as mum and dad tried to share that focus, a huge, huge focus was on me and trying to get me well. Um, and, you know, it got to a point where... There were, you know, he felt that I wasn't trying. And he was right. I wasn't trying. Um, and he basically disowned me, for want of a better word, because he could not deal with the fact that not only had I, you know, basically commandeered his childhood, but I, you know, was basically, as he said, you know, mum and dad were on the verge of divorce. Um, you know, mum's going to have a heart attack. Um, you, and you don't even care. And so he moved out. We were all living at home, family home, and he moved out. And, you know, I only saw him at Christmas, and he would give me sort of a cursory hug. And I look back on that now, and I just think how horrible, you know, for him to have to go through that. But I had no emotion, no emotion to the fact that my only brother was basically saying, I don't want you in my life. All I thought in my head at that point when he told me that was, well, I don't care because I want to be skinny. And that was, you know, that was my thought at that time. And I am incredibly, incredibly grateful. And I thank my lucky stars that he welcomed me back into my life when he could see that I was really making a concerted effort at getting well. And we now have an absolutely beautiful relationship that I will treasure forever. Um, but it really, really does put a strain on the entire family unit um, and when you're in your eating disorder because it does it does really make you very very selfish and that's not who I am as a person but I look back at a lot of what happened um, and you know it was it was very very focused around me I really didn't care about you know anybody else um, it was about doing what I needed to do to fulfill what the eating disorder wanted. When you think back on your time now and now you're watching and helping other young people because it's men as well and eating disorders can also mean binge eating and bulimia and all sorts of other uh, obesity and all these things. What do you think is the main problem in this day and age? Look, I mean, it's hard Kim, to pinpoint, you know, the main problem i think there are a lot of things that really combine um to make this you know issue such an incredibly incredibly um 
fraternity, I mean, it's exponentially. Like there was a, um, a study a study came out a couple of weeks ago that showed that eating disorder uh, rates have doubled um, over the last, I think it was the last 10 years, um, which is just incredibly, incredibly scary. Um, I think it's a combination of the fact that we don't have a lot of um, early intervention um, stuff happening. There's not nearly enough education around, um, you know, things like in schools and, you know, science to look out for. I think there also needs to be a lot more done around uh, dispelling the myths and stigma that surround eating disorders in terms of, you know, I think the media does have a lot to answer for in terms of their portrayal of, you know, what an eating disorder looks like. And one thing I always say to people is eating disorders do not have a look. But yet when you see something on the news about eating disorders or you see something in the newspaper about eating disorders, generally there will be an image attached of um, a very underweight white female. Now that does not help to uh, dispel the myths around you know, eating disorders being, you know, something that's reserved for superficial individuals, generally female, uh, who are obsessed with losing weight. Because, you know, as you've said before, there are many, many other eating disorders and they come, you know, in all different forms. And, you know, my caseload of client, recovery coaching clients at the moment, I would say about 70% of them, you wouldn't know to look at them in the street that they had an eating disorder. But yet they do. They have, they have raging eating disorders. Um, so I think, you know, the media combined with, I mean, social media, the, the focus that we have on our outward appearance and then these apps that can tune our, oh, it's called Facetune or something, I think. Goodness knows I don't, certainly don't have it myself. But, you know, I see these images that are photoshopped to the hilt and, you know, this focus on, um, you know, I think, Yes, let's focus on health and wellness because being well and healthy is an incredibly important part of being able to live a full life. But we need to take a balanced approach to this. You know, we can't body shame people and we can't have this culture of absolute fat phobia because all it's doing is creating, you know, I mean, I understand that there's an obesity crisis, but we need to be careful about the messaging that we're sending out to 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 society it's not just young people it's society in general because that then you know if someone is predisposed to an eating disorder it's you know just further confirming to them that they need to you know eat cleaner do this do that um and that they're not good enough whereas i feel there needs to be a lot more education about not demonizing certain foods and you know that food does not inherently have a moral value it's about you know education and about balance and about knowing that you know you can lead a healthy full life and eat all foods and have a balanced relationship with exercise and not be overly focused on your body and i really would like to see there be there being a shift towards self-worth not being related to appearance because I think it, in the, at the essence of it, that's what it comes down to. You know, this, this incredibly um, sort of honed focus on 
the way we look and that then equaling our self-worth. Whereas, you know, I talk to my uh, coaching clients a lot about the fact that, you know, what do we value in our friends? You know, and say to them, okay, your best friend, what do you value? Now, not one of the things that they value in their friends has got anything to do with the size of their arms or the shape of their thighs or, you know, the size of their nose or whatever it is. It's to do with, oh, I love how they make me laugh or they make me feel really supported or we have fun when we go on holiday. And I think that we need to start thinking about ourselves in terms of that and the fact that there are all these incredible things um, inherent within us that are of value that have got nothing to do with the way we look. You know, I think there's going to be so many people listening to today's show that are going to be getting so much out of this. And, you know, I like to think whether I'm right or I'm wrong, I still would ne- will never know. But, you know, I like to think that things happen for a reason and that, you know, things that, are, that occur in our lives are purposeful. And when I look at your life and what you're doing now, do you look back and think, well, maybe this is why I'm here. Maybe this is my, my purpose in this life is to be able to have gone through what I've been through, come out the other side and then make a difference in the lives of others by doing the work that you're doing now. Oh, look, I absolutely do. That's exactly how I feel. You know, and as I said before, I do not regret what I went through for a second. Mm. Um, I do believe that it's maybe the person that I am today. And I do believe that there is a reason that not only did I struggle, but I struggled so hard and so long and my hope was taken away by professionals because that informs how I work now in terms of ensuring that everybody understands that there is hope no matter how long or how hard they've struggled for that they can achieve full recovery and that they can live a life of freedom and not only that but that they deserve that and I feel like you know, I've been able to funnel all that pain that I experienced into creating this life of passion and purpose. Um, and I really, really do feel that I feel really, really grateful that I am able to use my lived experience as a recovery coach to literally help people get well and to walk alongside them on their journeys and, and ha- hold that hope for them when they don't feel that there's any hope mm. um, and and help them and their families to see that there is a way forward and that they can uh, recover. Um, and in terms of that, I mean, I also feel incredibly grateful um, that, you know, my paths crossed with Mark and Gay in terms of being able to join with them in Ended and, and create these big, um, you know, big dreams come true in terms of, of building a residential facility. Um, and, you know, t- to be able to leave a legacy of, you know, having created, you know, real systemic change. And, you know, like last year I went down to Parliament and spoke about myths and stigma surrounding eating disorders. And, you know, that is something I stood there and pinched myself and was like, wow, you know, I've, I've come a long way and, and there are some, you know, real change makers listening to what I'm saying and also watching with interest what, what we're doing as in dead um, in terms of really turning that medical model 
um, on its head and coming from a place of compassion and community and connection. Um, and I just, I just, I do, I feel incredibly, incredibly lucky to be in the position that I am to be able to not only share my story, but also to be able to help, um, yeah, I mean, no, keep saying it, but dispelling those myths because those myths and that stigma are what is causing, you know, eating disorders to still be swept under the carpet and causing people to sort of shrink back into the shadows and suffer in silence because they don't feel that they're sick enough or they don't feel, you know, heard by, by medical practitioners. Um, and so, yes, although it was a very, very long, arduous journey that I never, ever wish to repeat, um, I know firmly that I will be doing this for the rest of my life. Um, and there is a great peace in that, knowing that I am, you know, just where I need to be doing just what I need to be doing. And you're doing a great job of it too. And I just want to ask you, you touched on something there around professionals and my experience of the, the few people that sadly I have been in contact with either through mother-daughter retreats or through my daughter's dance world and even a friend whose son in his mid-20s was incredibly anorexic. It seems, and I'm just making a generalised statement here, it seems that the medical profession, which you've alluded to, um, are focused on getting the calories in to bring their body weight up, let's say, if we're talking about anorexia. Now, this, the, the thing in my mind is that if the person is given any calories at any cost and one boy was told to eat deep-fried Mars bars, no joke, by a medical practitioner, to get so many calories into him, yet his experience of the whole thing was that even looking at butter or even touching a smidgen of butter was going to have detrimental effects on him. How on earth do we connect the professional um, world with that mental, I, I guess, uh, please correct me if, you're, if you think I'm wrong, but it, it is like a mental illness around this. How on earth does a practitioner make that sense, make sense to a person who's really struggling? Yeah, look, absolutely. I mean, you're very right. It's a, we, we do call it a biological mental illness. Um, I think it really does come down to medical professionals having the, they really need to come from a place of wanting to understand. That's my experience because it is complicated and they can have clients on their books for many, many, many years not making any progress. Um, it's not easy to, to deal with people who have eating disorders, just as it's not easy to have one. Um, but that doesn't mean that people with eating disorders shouldn't have the specialised support that they need. And what I've found um, over the last four years in terms of you know, just, just working on the Sunshine Coast here with clients and things is that, um, you know, certain GPs say, well, I'm not taking any more eating disorders. They take up too much of my time. You know, and responses like that just go to show that there is a real lack of compassion and understanding around eating disorders. Um, I think, you know, it's all very well to say we need more education, but I remember there was a seminar run for GPs um, about a year or so ago 
now. Um, and, you know, it was sent out to, to hundreds and only a handful turned up. Um, so I think, you know, I mean, we do have to be mindful that as a general practitioner, they aren't specialised in eating disorders and they have a lot on their plate. But I think that, you know, with the sort of groundswelling of, of lived experience that's starting to emerge um, from both a parents and carers and a sufferer's perspective, I really, really hope that that will start to change. And I think what I've, what I've found in working with my clients is that the best results that we get are with getting a client engaged with a multidisciplinary team. So you've got a GP, you've got a psychologist, you've got a psychiatrist if need be, and you've got a dietitian and a recovery coach. And everybody works together with open communication between the entire team because what eating disorders like to do is splinter um, you know, the team, so they'll tell one thing to the psychologist, one thing to the recovery coach, and one thing to the dietitian so that you never really get anywhere. Um, but with that consistent, coordinated approach, preferably um, with lived experience in there somewhere, um, you know, from clinicians, um, that is where I see us getting the best results. And I feel that comes from not only that, you know, really open communication, um, but also that commitment to really wanting to see that person get well. You know, they're not just a number and they're not just a box to be ticked. You know, they're a human being who's going through really, really intense suffering. Um, and I would like to see more, um, yeah, more medical professionals really start to understand that and not see it as something that's just, you know, often, often I get people, you know, still in that medical profession saying that it's a choice. You know, they're making the choice not to eat and they just need to stop being stupid and start to, you know, start to make the choice to eat again. You know, and it's not nearly as simple as that. So, Millie, coming to the end of our time here on the show, what do you think is the first step? If anybody's listening to this, any mums or parents listening to this thinking, oh, my goodness, okay, it's time to take some action. What do you suggest the first step that they take is who should they call? What should they be doing if they're just at the beginning of the journey? Do they reach out to Ended? Do they reach out to you? Where do they go? Absolutely. Look, absolutely happy anybody to reach out to me or to Ended. Um, I'm sure we will put the details somewhere, won't we, ladies? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. All yeah. the details will be on the show notes. Okay. So, so for everybody who's um, running, they can, they can um, log on and find all the details. Fantastic. So that would be ideal. Um, we could then assess what your situation is, uh, where you're located. Um, we have, you know, lists of recommended um, practitioners that we, we've had good reports from or we've had personal experience with. Um, and we can sort of help. Yeah, help find a pathway through for you and, and try and wrap a team around you. And, you know, if recovery coaching is appropriate, we can team you with a recovery coach as well. Um, and obviously, if you're Sunshine Coast based, we also have some incredible support group uh, options. Um, but in terms of that first step in, in approaching their loved one, I always say that it's really, really important that it doesn't come from, you know, a confrontational place. Um, it's just more about maybe saying, hey, look, I've, I've really recognized that lately you're struggling a bit. Would you like to talk about 
you know, talk about what's going on for you with me. Not, you know, directly, you know, saying something like, oh, well, you're, you're getting too thin or you're eating too much or you're, you know, um, because that's just going to literally, um, you know, make the eating disorder arc up and their loved one go into absolute, you know, uh, fight or flight, shut down mode. You're not going to get anything out of them. Um, you know, I'd really encourage encourage parents and carers to be um, just really open, um, honest, and, you know, express their concern and also make it very, very clear to the individual that they are there for them no matter what, and they are not going to judge them, um, but that they just want to help them to get the help that they that they need um, and that they deserve. Awesome. Yeah, and also I just want to acknowledge your beautiful parents, Millie, what they must have gone through and your brother as a family, you know, to, to come out the other side, all of you, and then the pride and the, the sheer delight they must have in seeing you now helping others, which has given you more perception and understanding around what they went through. I just want to commend you all as a family and congratulate you, my love, on the work you're doing with end, 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 end ED. And I just, I'm really looking forward to, can you just explain to us a little bit just quickly to finish up um, the, the live-in opportunity because something that Cindy always talks about, whenever there's an issue going on, be it a mental, emotional issue, then one of the best things you can do is to actually extract yourself from the, the norm and go into nature or get into a farm or get out with animals or get, you know, into a space, particularly from her perspective, onto a farm where you're cooking your own meals and you're in a community-type situation. Is that what you're trying to create at that beautiful home that you guys are building here on the coast? Absolutely. Look, it's incredibly, incredibly exciting. And every time I drive down the driveway of that property, I have a big smile across my face and I, when you enter it, you literally do get this sense of calm and hope and healing. Uh, it's a beautiful 25-acre property in Malula Valley um, where we are about to start construction on Australia's first residential eating disorders facility. So we've partnered with the Butterfly Foundation um, and, it, yeah, it will be um, the first of its kind in Australia. Um, look, it is... Um, aligned with the eight keys to recovery model uh, from Carolyn Coston, and we will very much be taking a holistic approach to treatment there. Um, so trying to move away from from the medical model and also from that blanket um, treatment approach and really individualizing the treatment so that um, the clients get exactly what they need because as I as I said before, you know, eating disorders really do tailor themselves to the individual. And what we're seeing out at the property already as we run support groups or I have take clients out there and we have sessions in the beautiful grounds um, and with the beautiful animals, we've got uh, little new little therapy, miniature therapy horses out there, Charm and Ivy, and we've got little miniature pigs and a, lots of chickens and sheep and some new calves out there. 
Um, Kimmery, Kimmery, we have to go. <laughs> I was just thinking, oh my gosh, we're sold. <laughs> we, that, look, it is, you will have to come out and see it. It is absolute. I mean, it's beautiful. And, and just being around those animals and being outside just with, with the big trees, with the kookaburras, the cockatoos, you know, it is just, just beautiful. And there's something about being out in nature that really lends itself to people being more vulnerable and and opening up and possibly saying things that they wouldn't have said in a more clinical setting, whether that's in an office um, or in a hospital. And I really do find some of the best sessions that I have with my clients are sitting out there in nature and really just connecting. And it's also, I mean, look, we have people arrive for support group and they might be incredibly anxious. You know, these are people that... You know, they really, really struggle to get out of their, walk out of their homes because they're, you know, they're so anxious and they're able to get out there and have some quiet time with the animals and really come out of their shell. And it is, it's really, really beautiful. And we are incredibly excited um, to be really changing that, um, that treatment model and hopefully showing um, the rest of Australia that it can be done differently um, and that it doesn't need, recovery doesn't need to happen in that, you know, cold clinical hospital environment. So Millie, do you have a website that our guests can have a look at? Absolutely. So if they visit www.endedd.com, .org.au, um, they will, our contact details are up there um, and they can find out more, more about what's happening. We also um, run the Instagram um, at ENDED Australia um, and I update that daily with recovery inspiration. So if people can't get to our support groups or they don't have the capacity to do individual recovery coaching, they can check in on that daily and there will always be some form of recovery inspiration. And then we have on Facebook, um, Ending Eating Disorders. Awesome. Awesome, awesome. Well, my love, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. It's been amazing to share this last hour and also with you. Thank you for your insight, your incredible wisdom and your incredible experience on behalf of mankind. You have done an incredible job. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. Wonderful. So for all of our listeners, please go to the website, check out Millie, check out her story and also check out Ended. And if you are feeling like you need some help, feel free to reach out. We'll make sure that all the details are there on our, on our show notes. So make sure that you tune in next week where we become part of the ripple effect that is changing the world. We're going to see you on the ride, everybody. Bye for now. The 2019 Wellness Summit is almost here. I love being at these events. They're always such a great, positive environment. It's been really great to um, listen to like-minded people and to um, meet a few people, actually. I've been to every summit and I've been to every one and I'll always keep coming. It's always inspiring. It's been a real eye-opener. We're actually signed up to go to the breakthrough now. It's very motivating. I think it's great to listen to people who are inspired. And there's always something to learn and something to take away. I think uh, for myself and giving myself that um, opportunity to, to learn. There's so much going on in life and everything that you can get distracted and forget the things that you should be doing. And there's always 
reminds you to get back on track and, and um, to focus on the things that are important, a holistic health. Just do it, yeah. Just yeah, suck it up and do it. It's uh, it could be life changing, yeah. I would say it's awesome, and it's the start of changing your life. Come along, see what it's about, and enjoy it. It's an amazing event with like-minded, positive people, and you can't help but um, walk away feeling great. Positive Mentor presents the 2019 Wellness Summit, August 17 and 18 in Melbourne. Can you afford to miss out? Tickets at thewellnesssummit.com. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.